Welcome to the Housing Justice LA podcast. I'm Molly Reisman. I am Lorraine Cantley. On this podcast, we explore how principles of housing justice can help address the crisis of homelessness in Los Angeles. On today's episode, we'll be looking at the intersection of domestic violence and homelessness. I'm so glad to have you all here today for this very, very, very important discussion from our domestic violence community. So the Domestic Violence Homeless Services Coalition has come together to bridge the gap between the homeless service providers and those who provide services for those who are seeking help from domestic violence. The reason this was so important was because those who were leaving from the abuse were finding themselves showing up at domestic violence centers. And when those centers noticed that they were experiencing homelessness, then they would send them to a homeless service provider. And then when the homeless service provider would hear that they're experiencing domestic violence, they would say, we don't serve uh, survivors of domestic violence. So there was a constant ping pong. And through this pandemic, we know that it's very important to look at the vulnerabilities of those who are hearing that it's safer at home when in fact it's not. So we have some of our survivors, some of the advocates from the Domestic Violence Homeless Services Group who have recorded some of their challenges with seeking out services and some ideas for solutions. And I want everyone who is listening who may be experiencing abuse to be encouraged and to know that there is help to seek out for services. We're going to hear from a few of the advocates. Some of them will say their names and some of them will not. And again, the idea around their shares is to help us to envision what is it like to provide help for those who are escaping abuse and looking for safety and want the stability of housing. Hello, my name is Alicia Diane Roden. I'm a domestic violence advocate and also a survivor of domestic violence for many years. Some of the challenges that I faced as a survivor was being told you're not a right mother if you have to put your children in a shelter with you. You can't even take care of your children by yourself. Another thing I had to face was having to eat shelter food, being talked to like I wasn't even human, even being told because I had an incurable disease, we cannot have you in the same space as the other clients. Another thing I faced was going through Department of Social Services, not being treated with dignity, being asked questions like, who's the kid's daddy? Why you get beat up? Couldn't you protect your kids? And then my kids being talked to separately by a social worker because of my disease and because they wanted to know had they been involved with my abuse issues. What was the biggest challenge in wanting to leave a DV situation? Well, for me, the fear of leaving was being shamed trying to tell someone that my husband was abusive. Um, He just had a horrible, horrible temper, and 
the first thing that I will be asked is, what did you do to piss him off? Or, no, he's not that bad. I know him. He's not like that. Nobody knows how they are behind closed doors. The fear of not having anywhere to go, friends outing me. If I did try to leave, telling him where I was, um, just not being able to feel safe and being judged, making it seem like it's my fault. Well, what did you do to make him act like that? So it's a different varieties of fears that I experienced in a domestic violence situation. Um, the fear of being told that if I ever tried to leave, you can't hide, I will find you and no one will be able to recognize you. So, you know, it's the fear that is being installed mentally and verbal abuse as well. Being told that nobody will want me, I'm the best that you'll ever get, you're ugly, you're fat, and nobody's going to want you but me. I think the main thing right now is just to continue to offer the services to continue to be vigilant, to continue to advocate, to spread the word with everything that's going on today with the stay home order. You know, it's really hard to even get away, to make a phone call without him not hearing. It's just a very unfortunate situation in this time of this pandemic. So it does make situations more harmful I believe the best that we can do right now is just continue to keep those services rolling, to stay vigilant, and just continue to advocate. Hi, my name is Susan Kolkowitz. I'm an advocate with the Domestic Violence Homeless Services Coalition, and I'm employed by the Downtown Women's Center in Skid Row. I work with the women living in permanent supportive housing. I wanted to share my views about the challenges to seeking help for those surviving domestic violence. For myself, the number one problem was stigma. The stigma surrounding those experiencing domestic violence is pervasive. Over time, I internalized much of it. Then there was the psychological and emotional bullying by the abuser. And finally, there's the treatment I received from police who came to my home because a neighbor might call. And they mostly treated me with disdain, disrespect, minimizing my injuries, and that trifecta of shame and stigma prevented me from seeking help for a couple of years. The second uh, main thing that challenged me while seeking help was the lack of opportunity. A powerful and intimidating aspect of his abuse was controlling my activities. He increasingly accompanied me everywhere to the point I was under almost 24-hour day surveillance. Of course, he also tried multiple times to install spy apps on my phone, tablet, computer. The only time I'd have to myself would be things like going to the grocery store, post office, laundromat, getting public assistance. He'd drive with me there, but generally he wouldn't come inside, choosing to stay in the car, listen to music, etc. So while I was out from under his gaze, I'd have enough time to seek help. But there were no services available in the produce section at Ralph's, for example, you know. And forget using my phone or my computer. All in all, there just was no real opportunity. That was a serious challenge for me. And I think about the challenges survivors today face. 
living with COVID-19 as part of our reality. With the abuser being less able to leave the house, to go do whatever he's going to do, go to work, uh, see friends, etc., I can only imagine that it must be significantly worse for people experiencing domestic violence with the abuser constantly in the home. So the solutions I'm thinking about these days to help survivors seek assistance are, number one has got to be shame and stigma reduction. This must be a number one goal. You know, it needs to include massive anti-stigma messaging via social media, through online websites, TV, radio, print ads, signs on buses. We must help survivors know they deserve receiving help. Equally important is for police to not re-traumatize survivors, to not reinforce the messages of unworthiness. So this means essentially trauma education and trauma-informed practices for law enforcement. Not an easy task, but it would have been an amazing thing for me to have received real help, real support from the very first contact I had with any kind of theoretical support services, which was the police. That could have made a huge difference in my case. And finally, we have to create opportunities where survivors would feel safe enough to seek help, even if it was right under their abusers' noses. So I'm thinking about those 45 minutes in the grocery store, those 90 minutes in the laundromat, those two hours at the county office. Going to the post office, there might be a 40-minute or a 20-minute wait in line. It needs to be places where the abuser wants the survivor to go, so it's not a fight about getting out of the house, and that there is enough time for the resources and the support to be offered. Thank you. Keep safe. Tiffany DuBernay-Smith is my name, and I am a survivor of domestic violence. I believe that letting go of the fear of judgment in order to be able to ask for help is a big step. Who is safe enough to ask for help? It took me going to the Department of Social Services to get cash and food stamps and telling my worker what was happening and asking her to help me get out of my relationship because I hadn't been able to do it by myself. Five years of every day with this guy, four months of trying to go back and forth, breaking up. And I'm like, why do I keep going back if I know how I'm going to be treated? So I asked her for help because I'm like, I am stuck. The solutions that I imagine during this pandemic would be support and awareness. I really cannot imagine being home all day with my abuser. And even if he wasn't home all day, it still seems like I would feel very trapped, just not being able to catch a break or breathe or move about freely to feel freedom. Well, with my abuser, I began therapy and the domestic violence support groups that social services had referred me to. The awareness I gained from what I was learning strengthened me to leave. It took three months. I snuck out with my belongings and never looked back. I stayed in those support groups for five and a half years. My solution is a group right now. So an online group of domestic violence survivors and people currently in their relationship and, of course, people who've had that 40-hour domestic violence training, because that's what helped me, the support groups. You have to be bold and courageous, and most importantly, safe to even be able to participate in something so necessary. And if not support groups, then at least online resources and material to strengthen and empower people currently in toxic, dysfunctional, unhealthy, abusive relationships. Back to me, it was a healing journey of loving myself and what I call inner work. 
I left with no place to go. My physical and emotional safety was more important. I made a mayday call to a married couple who didn't know what was going on those five and a half years. I took my stuff there the next day, stayed for two weeks. I was referred to shared housing where I could give my GR cash as rent. That's the beginning. That's my story. And the most important thing is to ask for help and take action. It's the hardest thing. You have to find someone or someplace that you trust and just completely let go. Free fall. Let it all go. Your life may depend on it. One motivating factor was I felt I was about to end up dead or in jail on accident or on purpose. I had to go. Enough was enough, but I could not do it by myself or I would have. I have to read you something because Facebook is a resource, believe it or not. So I left on July 29th, but on July 26th, I reached out to a complete stranger and I ran across this a few days ago because this lady sent me something in my inbox and I got excited. I was like, let me scroll back to see why I'm excited. It turns out something that this woman wrote in a Facebook group made me trust her. And I believe from reading that it's because she was a case manager with the Department of Mental Health, the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health. So I wrote her, I said, um, I need your friendship right now, Ebony. I'm very untrusting right now and stuck. You're single, never married, no children, close to my age, a lot of things in common. The main thing right now is my life is upside down and I'm having the hardest time ever. And I need help making the correct decisions. It may sound weird. But I'm hoping you can keep what I'm saying confidential. I really don't know what to do and I'm scared. She said, about what? The most urgent thing is I need a shower. I need a place to sleep. I don't want to be on the street. What shelter is the right one? Etc. I'm so alone and I feel like I need some hand-holding. She says, oh my gosh, what happened? I'm writing in an overwhelmed state and I know you don't have any background to work with. I don't even know where to start. I'm hoping I can come to you as a case manager with the Department of Mental Health who may have resources. I need you as a sister because my soul is so lost right now because of my life. I need you as a confidant and I'm trusting that in your line of work, you have to keep secrets all the time. So I wanted to share like I was scared and I was desperate and I was telling her like, I want to trust you and you're supposed to be a safe person. Can I trust you? That's really what I was saying. And when I look back, now that I know what I know, eight years later, she really did handle me the right way. But I do want to say something I shared later in the message. I told her, I said, two safe women I trusted use this information against me. How can someone do that? But I'm learning the hard way not to be vulnerable. It's just who I am. I'm used to loving and being loved, not this crap I'm currently experiencing. I know there's a spiritual aspect to it. My spirit is pretty much tormented. So yeah, I just randomly found a lady that I trusted and I let it all go. And even though all the information she gave me that I know now is right, I didn't use that. My help came another way. But let me tell you something. She was who I needed her to be at that moment. And this is what we need. These are our solutions. Thank you. Hi, my name is Pamela Crenshaw. Um, I am an advocate for CSH for the Lived Experience Advisory Board for LASA and also for the Downtown Women's Center Domestic Violence Homeless Service Coalition. Uh, I've been doing this for about five years now at LASA and CSH and I speak and I also am an advocate for permanent supportive housing to help homeless 
to help provide um, skills and services for the community. I also advocate on different levels for my community here in Hollywood. Um, started off, I was married to a fireman, an LA City firefighter. I was in an abusive relationship. I got pregnant at 16 and got married. I had two kids by the time I was 18. I lived what everybody thought was the elite life because I had a lot and I was um, suffering um, because I wanted to keep my kids in a home and I tried to pretend like everything was okay so I went on like this for 14 years at the age of 30 um, I had started to drink to kill the pain my husband asked for a divorce and I said yes then he started to cry and he didn't want to do it but I proceeded with it I went into my condo we had a, a rental our renters had left so I rented my condo and I went to work and I met someone else and got married and then I was introduced to cocaine um, I lost my condo and um, I sent my kids to live with their father and that just continued on for many years off and on I sold the condo I moved back home in the house that I grew up in I was in and out of drugs and alcohol for oh about seven years total um, and then I got clean and sober in 1991 and I went back to work went to college because that's kind of what I do when I get clean I go back to college and I go to work in 1993 I met a man at an AA meeting and we started a business from ground zero he was a carpenter and I was um, going to school to be a drug counselor I started working at New Beginnings in Lakewood and I got hired after my internship and then I got put on per diem, so I started going to work with my husband, and we were in the shutter business. We built a construction company with help from Vogue Rehab, and it became very successful. Um, I en ended up with 30 employees. It was about a million-dollar business at the time, and I worked very hard. I loved construction. I was very busy, and then we started having marital problems, and my husband relapsed, and I had a nervous breakdown and gave my business away to one of my largest accounts. Went back home, moved back home again, went to college, started working again in a different field. I had um, been computer literate for many years. And so I went to work for an import expert company, went to Harvard College and had a sociology major. I had a 3.8 GPA. I did really well and then my uncle got sick. My husband came back in my life and I tried to make it again and then I ended up relapsing. That went on for a couple years. I, my uncle passed away. I took care of him. And that's when I relapsed was after he died. So I had another couple year run and got clean again, living at home with my mom. And my, her husband died. So it was just my mom and I. And then I ended up relapsing again. I was working three jobs, going to school full time. I was also in theater. Um, I had a theater major and a psychology minor at the time. So anyway, I end up getting in some trouble for what today would be a misdemeanor and a slap on the hand was a felony. I got put on summary probation and um, I had gotten sick and couldn't walk for a while. I had a surgical procedure that left me semi-paralyzed for a short time. So I asked my probation officer if I could go into treatment. And that's when I went up to the Weingart. I was dating someone and by this time, I'd been married three times. Yeah, it didn't work out for me. I'm really excited for today's interview 
Um, when I was first starting out, I actually got my certification as a domestic violence counselor. When I was 17, I did the 40-hour certification and then spent the next eight years volunteering and later working in domestic violence shelters. So I'm really excited for our interview today because we're going to be talking with the amazing Amy Turk, who is the CEO of the Downtown Women's Center. Hello, everybody. Thank you, Amy, for joining us today. Thank you, Molly, for all of your support. And thank you, Bill, for being such an amazing uh, podcast maker (laughs) in this process. It has been a great learning. And now that we are in these adjustments of the pandemic, something came to me. I remember when the Safer at Home orders were put in place and we had our first meeting with the colleagues of the Client Center Services work group. And on that call, that Zoom call, it was stated that there's a decrease in asks for restraining orders and the reports of domestic violence. And that was something that stuck to me. It made such an impact that that night when I laid down to sleep, all I could do was like send prayers for those who could be experiencing domestic violence and having to stay at home with their abuser being so close and and feeling like there's there's no hope. So for myself, I knew it was easier for me to take the chance of taking my own life opposed to reaching out for help and asking for someone to just offer some support and what it could look like for me to leave that abusive situation. And as I was sleeping that night and a few other nights, I was awakened out of my sleep, moved in tears many times. And I remember calling Amy and I said, Amy, I can't let this circle in my head anymore. We need to talk about what are the challenges that folks are facing while at home with their abusers. Amy, as she always is, she hears me very well and created an opportunity for us to start these conversations with the coalition. It came to this point where we're now bringing Amy into this conversation because of her work with survivors and with women and wanted to take a look at how this pandemic is impacting those desperate needs of those who are being told that it's safer at home when it's really not. And so to bring Amy into this space, we would like to hear about you and who you are and your path to becoming the executive director of the Downtown Women's Center. Please, Amy, share with us. Thank you, Lorraine. It's an honor to be here with you and with Molly. Oh, and I think back about 20 years ago, maybe about 23, I had a conversation that when I reflect back, it really sparked my passion for uh, doing what I can to end homelessness. I had just started volunteering at what is now called the People Concern. I volunteered at Daybreak Shelter, which supported women. And I prepared a meal and I sat down to enjoy it alongside a woman who shared with me she was just days away from moving from the transitional shelter into permanent housing. And her life challenges were complex and apparent, but what 
affected me most profoundly was her resiliency and her willingness to share with me um, her powerful story. And that just sort of ignited this awareness of a profession where I could support people to help help them in their paths. So I kept on volunteering. And then um, after college, I spent the next 12 years working for the people concerned. I obtained my master's level degree in social work, became a licensed clinical social worker. And then one day a colleague sent me an email. It was the job description of a job at the Downtown Women's Center. And she said, this is you. And I looked at that, I was after 12 years in one place, I was kind of like, wow, I'm going to try that. And that has led to seven years working in the Downtown Women's Center and just three months ago becoming the chief executive officer. And Amy, can you tell us about Downtown Women's Center for folks who aren't familiar? It's such an amazing organization. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of Downtown Women's Center and what kind of services are provided at DWC? For over 40 years now, Downtown Women's Center has been the only provider exclusively focused on serving women. And by women, we mean everyone who identifies as a woman or was born female at birth experiencing homelessness. And we were started by Jill Halverson. Um, She was in an AmeriCorps service program at the time doing outreach. And she realized that all of the social services in the Skid Row community were exclusively for men. And there was a growing population of women experiencing homelessness. So she and her friends opened up a drop-in center, which we still operate, which creates a safe place for us to be able to meet the basic needs of women. Women can meet with counselors and mental health experts. We now have a health clinic on site. We support 119 women in what's called permanent supportive housing in two different buildings that we own and operate. And we support an additional 600 women throughout Los Angeles County through various field-based housing opportunities. And we work to find employment pathways for women. One of that pathways is through our social enterprise called Made by Downtown Women's Center, uh, where our employees make a home and gift product line, including candles and soaps. And they work in our resale boutique and cafe. And we also see ourselves as a local application of how to holistically address and solve women's homelessness with a broader reach. And we're very involved in advocacy efforts, including founding with Elizabeth Eastland at Rainbow Services, the Domestic Violence Homeless Services Coalition, which brought me into contact with Lorraine. Amy, please share with us what is some available help to the DV survivors during this pandemic? During the pandemic, a couple of new initiatives have emerged to support DV survivors. One of the newest efforts is supported through the LA City Mayor's Fund in partnership with the Housing and Community Improvement Department. This is providing funding for hotels for domestic violence survivors, and it's predominantly a privately funded effort with well-known names supporting it, like the singer Rihanna and Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, funding a significant portion. And domestic violence service providers are staffing the supports for the survivors in the hotels and looking for long-term housing after the hotel stay. Another initiative that the Housing and Community Improvement Department, in collaboration with the LA City Economic Workforce Development Department, started was to provide financial support to survivors of domestic violence and human trafficking. This is for survivors that can demonstrate that COVID impacted their income through reduction of work hours, furloughs, and job loss. And all of the more traditional services are still in place. 
the hotlines uh, for survivors for counseling and resources, all the emergency services, legal services, uh, shelters, etc. Amy, when Lorraine was opening up this conversation, she talked about how we're not seeing many women or survivors reach out to get restraining orders. And I've also heard we're not seeing a lot of folks who are experiencing domestic violence calling the police right now. Can you talk a little bit about the data and in particular, how it's going to impact the help that's available, not seeing the need demonstrated in the data? Yeah, it's certainly not a good thing, actually, that calls are reportedly down to hotlines. What this tells us is that it's not actually safe for people to be making phone calls at all. And then when they do reach out, what we're seeing is that the violence has become too unbearable or the lethality has become too urgent to wait. Of survivors' partners also sheltering in place, the survivor has less opportunity to make a phone call to reach out or to keep an appointment with an existing counselor. You know, and also with children at home now, it might be harder to reach out. You might not be able to talk about certain things in front of children. And we've seen this before in past recessions. We've seen an increase in domestic violence. There seems to be a correlation between economic stressors and domestic violence. The last recession in 2008 really hit jobs that are traditionally held by men harder, construction and housing development in particular. And in this one, we're seeing more economic impacts on women. Uh, A lot of the jobs that have been lost right now were held by women or women are working more frontline jobs. We're going to learn a lot through this. We're actually working with the Homeless Policy Research Institute to try to learn more quickly so that we can meet the needs of survivors through this time. Some survivors are being assisted through the Project Room Key, which are the hotels that have been set up to serve people who are homeless and over 65 or with an underlining health condition. For survivors who are able to get rooms in Project Room Key hotels, what help is available for them? Project Room Key is structured a little bit differently than the Mayor's Fund hotels that I mentioned before for DV survivors. Uh, This is made possible through FEMA funds that California's Governor Newsom took quick advantage of, and it's a partnership with the state and cities and counties to contract with hotels and motels. In Los Angeles, we now have just a little over 3,000 individuals who were referred by service providers of shelters into these rooms. The criteria was, for the most part, folks that were over 65 with underlying health conditions. And because they were screened for those things, we didn't know if they were a survivor of domestic violence or not. So as we get to know people in these new housing situations, we're also able to provide for their unique needs. And I was curious, um, because I know the Project Room Key hotels are being stood up really quickly as DWC got to experience firsthand with the hotel that you're operating. Um, And these hotels, it's not just the homeless service providers. Each hotel um, has a variety of staff, like hotel staff and housekeeping staff and security and nurses. Is anything being done to train all of these people who are supporting the Project Room Key sites about how to support trauma survivors? Yes. It's been amazing to work with staff from all different sectors and practices. As you've mentioned, and you can imagine, many of these staff have never supported individuals in this way, and they're not trained in matters related to complex trauma. And so service providers have started to take the lead to provide training. For example, just little things like 
if a, a maintenance staff member or someone who's cleaning a hotel room knocks really loud on the door of a resident, that could be perceived as triggering or aggressive. Maybe that sound triggers someone who's lived through violence. So just reminding people that the volume of your voice, how you knock is really important and can prevent people from feeling triggered or uncomfortable. And Quickly Partners built training in this space, namely Christina Cortez with LA Homeless Services Authority and Eve Sheedy with the LA County Domestic Violence Council and our national partners with National Alliance for Safe Housing. They've been providing frequent training on this subject. So now there's a lot of webinars and PowerPoints and things that we've been circulating with our partners. And over the last few years, California has developed the motto of domestic violence housing first. Can you explain what domestic violence housing first is and how it is different from the traditional DV services? This model is so exciting. Uh, it was developed in Washington State through the Washington State Coalition Against Domestic Violence with leaders like Chris Billhart and Linda Olson. And it was so promising that the Gates Foundation got behind it and piloted it. And it showed really effective results in either helping survivors stay housed in where they're currently housed or helping them quickly find housing to mitigate experiencing homelessness. And the model provides for extreme flexibility. The staff are mobile, so they'll meet survivors and their children where it is most convenient and safe for the survivor. And then it provides flexible financial assistance. So for some survivors, it might just be paying one month's rent that really can create the stability for them to move forward in their lives. Or it might be paying for a car repair so that they can keep their jobs. So there's really not that many regulations and stipulations about what you can pay for, which provides for the flexibility needed. And about four years ago, when we were starting the Domestic Violence Homeless Services Coalition, we embarked on conducting focus groups of people experiencing homelessness and domestic violence. And the top recommendation that came out of that was the flexible funding needs. And that sometimes survivors don't actually need to uproot from their community and move into a domestic violence shelter. Sometimes they can stay where they're at so their job can move forward, so their children can stay in the same schools, but they just need a little bit of flexible support. One of the things I think a lot of people don't know is how much connection there is for women who are experiencing homelessness between their homelessness and past experiences of trauma. I know for me, it was a real eye opener. I hope I say this right. I think it's the Downtown Women's Action Coalition that does the needs assessment. Um, and Amy, please correct me if I'm getting that wrong. But I think that that assessment, I know, for me was really eye opening to see how many women experiencing homelessness had experienced either domestic violence, um, or other interpersonal trauma. So can you talk a little bit about the connection between homelessness um, and domestic violence for women? Yeah, you mentioned the, the needs assessment. For years now, we've been partnered with the Downtown Women's Action Coalition to look at the needs of women in Skid Row. And then most recently, Downtown Women's Center took that community-based research citywide. And in the most recent report that we issued just at the end of last year, showed that in this last year, 60% of the women we surveyed perceived themselves as a victim of crime throughout the last year. 
56% stated they had experienced domestic violence over the course of a lifetime. And I believe it was 36% reported they had experienced domestic violence within the last year while homeless. Of that, 26% stated they had been a victim of sexual assault while experiencing homelessness. First of all, the experience of domestic violence shouldn't ever happen, obviously, but that it so quickly or even long-term leads to homelessness is part of the housing justice element. There are so many systems that basically weaponize survivors and reduce the resources that they have access to. You know, we know that domestic violence cuts across all socioeconomic lines, but it still bears especially hard on women of color, especially when it comes to housing. Frequently, calls to 911 might be made by neighbors or even by perpetrators of violence. And there's these things called that can be perceived as a nuisance behavior that could lead to evictions. And we know that evictions fall disproportionately on women of color. It's really hard to obtain restraining orders. For example, it's nearly impossible to obtain a restraining order, especially exactly when you need one. And sometimes it creates a more dangerous situation because, of course, the restraining order has to be served to the perpetrator. And there's so many misperceptions of where the abuse originates that sometimes, unfortunately, the survivor can look like the abuser. And all of these intricacies lead to housing instability. And so you have someone who's lived through complex trauma already, and now they're experiencing the trauma of homelessness. It just compounds the issue and requires really a gendered lens approach to the work and a level of trauma expertise to the work to help people heal. Yeah, I know for me, I feel like it's been a real journey during my time working on homelessness to really understand trauma um, and what a powerful impact it has on people um, and how to respond in ways that don't exacerbate that trauma. Um, and I think a lot of people's initial ideas about how to respond to homelessness can sometimes exacerbate trauma. Um, and we have a lot of work to do. Um, to understand trauma and how to respond in a way where we can really create healing environments for people. Um, I'd love to hear just about your vision for the future um, and how we can ground our response to survivors fleeing domestic violence in principles of housing justice. You know, we really just need to create systems where A, domestic violence doesn't exist, um, but B, if it does, that it doesn't lead to homelessness. Uh, that there are quick and early interventions that can help people. And part of domestic violence is economic control. And so frequently a survivor has very few options and might stay in a domestic violence relationship due to economics. So um, programs like Free From, which is based in Los Angeles, works on economic empowerment opportunities for survivors. Early intervention, helping destigmatize domestic violence in those focus groups that I mentioned before. Most of the people that I met with, it took a long time for them to realize there were resources available. And we can't take it for granted that even though there's been hotlines and resources for 40 plus years now, people don't actually know they exist. So more outreach, more support, more destigmatizing of the issue are some of the ideas that come to mind. That's great. It's such a pleasure to have you on our podcast, Amy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Molly and Lorraine. It's been a pleasure on my end, too. 
Thank you. And one thing that I do know is when we equip the advocates with lived experience on the opportunities to advocate for policy, then it brings in a wider scope of how solutions come about for survivors in real time. So thank you, Amy, for extending that uh, opportunity for lived experience to be brought into the table and create that policy that will have that specific lens driven by survivors. That's right. If we don't do it together, we won't come up with the right solutions. I'm excited about what the future holds. Me too. And so we're ending today's episode with a reading from my daughter, Destiny, who finds it very necessary to share with folks um, this important reading that is anonymous, but it's shared with the domestic violence service group that provides services in the area of Sacramento. Thank you, Destiny, for reading this for us today. Dear Anonymous, do you remember that just over a year ago you made the wise decision to continue on your healing journey by remembering yourself from a dead-end street? Leaving a dangerous place actually opened the gates of hell and showed you just how smart you were to have made the decision to leave when you did. Of course, you had no idea how that would open the door of actual change you've been seeking for years. This move in the right direction has provided you with the tools you so desperately needed to achieve your growth from victim to survivor. You have your groups, you started school and you're well on your way. Your recent diagnosis of PTSD has given you a new understanding of how you've been impacted and is the ability to free you from a lifetime of wrong information. You are right where you need to be and you will soon see all your efforts pay off. With each new day, you will achieve even greater strength. You will be free from fear and anxiety from the past. Trust yourself because you can. There's a light that gets brighter and clearer and it's coming from inside of you. Love yourself. We hope that you'll keep listening and subscribe to the podcast, rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Please reach out by emailing us at housingjusticepodcast. Again, that's housingjusticepodcast at gmail.com. We welcome your questions and we will have a question and answer episode later in the season. So reach out and ask any question you have about homelessness in LA. Housing Justice LA is Lorraine Cantley. Molly Reisman. Bill Lance. New Dad. Our music is provided by Adam Goldman. Special thanks to Anne English for her support and work on the CSH Speak Up program. This podcast is produced on Tongva land in Los Angeles and made possible through a Stanton Fellowship from the Durfee Foundation.